Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Painting by M. D. Vickers Years gone by was a large rambling place, stuffed to the roof with old junk. There was something for everyone—paintings, guns, jukebox and pinball machines, furniture, books, pottery—the list was endless. It was a bank holiday Monday, and the doors were open to the public. It was quite packed, giving an indication of its popularity. Frank, come and look at this! Mary Stansfield called to her husband. Frank looked up, an old musket in his hands. He saw his wife stood a few yards away, looking up at a painting on the wall. He put the gun back in its place and walked over. Isn't it lovely, Frank? Just look at the life in those little eyes. It was a painting showing a young girl sat next to a window, a small dog in her porcelain white hands. The girl was gazing out wistfully from the picture, her green eyes shining. Her hair was blonde, flowing down over her shoulders and framing her pretty face. I hope the frame's included in the price. Good grief! Frank Stansfield muttered. A glance at the price tag had told him the damage. One thousand five hundred, including VAT. Your trouble is, Frank, you don't appreciate anything. Why not comment on how beautiful the painting is, how much work has gone into it, instead of just how much it blessed costs? She walked on and began to rummage through what looked like a pile of other paintings propped against the wall. Frank turned back to his guns and continued his inspection of the musket. They were both now retired. Frank was sixty-eight, Mary sixty-two. They planned to enjoy the twilight years of their life in relaxation and comfort. They were pretty well off, having taken out sound pension schemes, and were visited by their two grandchildren regularly. Frank, come and look at this! His wife called again, in an almost hysterical tone. He looked up, irritated this time. Whatever is it now? Can't I look at what I want to look at in peace for heaven's sake? Just have a look at this, she called again, more quietly. Sighing, he wandered over yet again to where Mary was holding a large painting, its bottom propped on the floor. Don't you think he looks just like you, Frank? The painting was of an old man sat snugly in an armchair, holding a book, except he wasn't looking at the book. He was staring with haunting eyes out of the picture. Thanks for the compliment, Mary, I must say. Mary was beaming at the painting. He's the spitting image, especially the nose. I think I'll buy it. Remind me of you when you've passed on. How much is it? Frank asked, as ever only concerned with the financial side of things. Mary flicked the hanging tag round to face her. Well, it's not cheap. But what do you expect for a quality painting like this? Frank looked at the tag. Bloody Nora, you're telling me it's not cheap. The price tag told him it was £520 including VAT. Frank, don't swear when there's people about. A young couple walked by and grinned. It's up to you, love. If you've set your mind on it, then there's usually nothing I can do or say to make you change it. Have you thought of a place for it? Not yet, but a bit of rearranging will soon sort that out. 
I was thinking of over the fire in the living room. Well, if you've decided on it, you better pay for it now in case it gets sold. Not that I think it would. It's pretty creepy, don't you think? The man in the painting certainly did look eerie. It was the eyes. They were like the eyes of a murderer, cold and piercing. Frank shivered before he next spoke. Are you definitely sure you want it? Yes, definitely. It's got something about it. Apart from the resemblance to you, there's something else. I just find it captivating. Almost hypnotic. It's like I've got to have it, in a way. Right then, Frank said and grasped the painting at the sides. Good Lord, it's heavy. His face had gone a nice shade of maroon. Frank, put it down. You'll give yourself a rupture. People turned and laughed at the scene. Be quiet, woman. I'm still as as strong as an ox. He ended with a mammoth expulsion of air and spittle. People cleared the way as Frank proceeded to walk carefully with the pitcher in front of him, Mary reluctantly guiding. Suddenly, there was a scraping sound as a bureau started to slide backwards. Careful, Frank. You're catching that cupboard. Mary remarked with an apparent lack of regard for the narrowness of the aisle. It would help if you pointed these things out to me, Frank gasped. He could see over the top of it all right, but it was a bit wide, and the passageway wasn't exactly accommodating. Eventually, Frank stubbornly refusing any offers of a lift, they got to the pay booth. Fifteen minutes they had to wait. When the matter of the payment had been sorted out, they were kindly given an old sheet to wrap around it for protection. Half an hour later, they were home. They lived in a quiet area, a nice bungalow on a respectable estate. Frank slowly pulled the car into the driveway, and turned off the engine. He handed Mary the keys. You go in, love, and slap the kettle on. I'll get that monstrosity out of the back. Be careful you don't chip it, Frank. I don't want it looking like a beaver's been gnawing at it when it gets in. She unlocked the door, and left it open for him to come in with the painting. He opened the back door of the car, and dragged the heavy pitcher out, Pulling aside the cloth and looking at it in broad daylight, it seemed more eerie than before. The man really was a frightener. It made Frank think of a Halloween mask. Then he thought of how Mary had said it looked like him. He chuckled softly to himself and went inside. Surprisingly, the painting didn't do a full orbit of the house, as Frank had thought. Mary agreed it was the best place over the fire. Frank cracked a joke and said it would certainly keep the grandchildren away from it. Now it was hung up, they could both have a more thorough study of the artwork. The old man in the picture looked perhaps sixty-five to seventy years old. His face wasn't too haggard, though it did possess its fair share of lines. He had a surprisingly good head of hair. It was almost white, but bushy, and certainly not receding. Frank's, on the other hand, was a lot thinner— swept back and plastered down with a generous portion of oil. The eyes of the portrait were like chips of ice, cold, mercenary eyes, staring out as if aware of the surroundings. He was seated in a wine-red-coloured armchair, his hands clasping the book, one leg crossed over the other. On his right was one half of a bureau, before it disappeared off the picture. On top of the bureau was a vase of flowers and a framed photograph, 
To the left of him there was a window, showing a glimpse of the world outside the man's abode. What looked like a town hall clock was visible, and several black flecks in a V-shape that could only be birds of some description. Underneath the window was what resembled a pair of old man's slippers next to the edge of a green rug. The man in the painting was barefoot, except for socks. "'Wish I had a head of her like that,' Frank said as the commercials came on halfway through Coronation Street. Mary was also looking at the picture. "'He looks sad, doesn't he? As if he's had a sad life. I wonder who he was.' The street was coming back on, and they didn't talk about the picture again until the next morning. Frank got up the following day at his ritualistic time of seven o'clock. It was time for their routine brew. He plodded into the kitchen, swathed in his thick blue dressing gown, and flicked on the kettle. He didn't need to check whether it was full or not. Mary always filled it up religiously before she went to bed the night before. Walking into the living room, he drew back the curtains, turned to the painting, and gasped. The picture was different. It didn't hit him at first, the difference. Then all of a sudden a jolt ran through him, and woke him up fully. "'Holy moly!' he whispered, staring at the changed painting. Feeling unsettled and vaguely nauseous, he turned and walked back into the bedroom, as if on autopilot. "'Mary! For God's sake, Mary!' He was pulling her arm, threatening to tear it from the socket. What? Frank? What? He continued to yank her upper limb frantically, desperately trying to hold on to his sanity. Frank, for goodness sake! Mary, just look at this, please. He was almost begging, pleading. At this last comment, which was so unlike Frank's usual manner, Mary Stansfield got up from the bed, shragged on her pink bathrobe, and followed her husband into the living room. Look at the painting. Mary looked. What about the painting? Frank maintained his patience as he continued. Look at the man's feet. Mary looked again, and emitted a low squeal of astonishment at what she saw. That's not right. She managed to gasp in a small, helpless voice. Indeed, it wasn't right. Not at all. The more they both looked, the more they believed they were each going insane, or had already gone that way. The old man in the picture was now wearing the slippers. His legs were uncrossed, his feet planted firmly on the floor. Apart from that, everything appeared as it was. Frank Stansfield's overloaded mind was sending out warning signals. Danger, danger, overload, overload. He felt strange, outside of himself disconnected. Frank, what's happening? How can it be? What's happening? Frank couldn't answer. All he could do was shake his head dumbly. The kettle in the kitchen suddenly clicked off and startled them both. They gathered themselves with a monstrous effort and made their way slowly, bewilderedly, back to their bedroom. For the first time in years, the pair of them went without breakfast. It was ten o'clock. The doorbell's chimes echoed through the house. Mary went to answer it. They had both agreed to mention the strange painting to no one. At least not yet. She opened the door. It was their daughter, Jill, with her two children, Michael and Sarah. Michael was eight, Sarah three. 
Hi there, come in. Mary welcomed them inside. This is a surprise. Michael and Sarah charged past, laughing and screaming. How are you, Mum? All right? Jill closed the door as she stepped inside and began to remove her coat. In the best of health, as is Dad. I'll just put the kettle on. Mary walked off in the direction of the kitchen. Hey, Mum, I like your picture. Looks just like Dad. Mary tapped on the window to Frank, who was shoveling soil, somewhat lethargically with a trowel. He stood up, and both knees fired twin rifle reports. Dropping the trowel onto the churned-up earth, he made for the back door, conscientiously tapping dirt off his shoes before entering. Jill's here with the kids, Mary told him. Oh, great. Hello, Jill. Hello, kids. Instantly, his two grandchildren came bounding into the kitchen. He led them off into the living room to join his daughter, Sarah clinging to his neck and Michael gripping his waist. Two minutes later, Mary came in, carrying a tray supporting three mugs of coffee and two beakers of orange squash. She set the tray down on the coffee table and handed the two children their orange. I've just been asking Dad about the painting, Mum. It's a nice place as years gone by. What made you choose that particular picture? She reached over for her coffee, which was contained in a cup that had her name printed on the side. Mary looked at the picture with a certain amount of fear. Had she imagined it earlier? Had he not been wearing the slippers all the time? I don't know, really. It just had that something about it, and the fact that it reminded me of your dad. Frank uttered a small, uneasy laugh. The ultimate insult. He glanced up at the picture again. The incarcerated geriatric staring wild eyes returned his gaze. Had they changed as well? Did his hair not look slightly ruffled? Had the vase of flowers shifted position? Now his imagination was beginning to get the better of him. And who could blame it? After what had happened, he was quite willing to forgive it. Will it be all right if I leave the kids here this afternoon, Mum? It's those exercise classes I was telling you about. Mary grinned from ear to ear. Of course it will, love. We're always glad to have them, you know that. She ruffled Sarah's long blonde hair as she spoke. Sarah looked up and giggled, orange around her mouth. Is it school holidays already? They've only just had a bank holiday. Jill cast a suspicious glance at Michael, who had gone quiet all of a sudden. Sarah had a bit of a temperature when she woke up, so I decided to keep her away from the play school for the day. As for Michael, I think I've been conned. He said he had tummy ache as soon as he found out Sarah was stopping off, so I told him to go back to bed. Seemed to buck up shortly after, though. Frank issued a crafty laugh and disarrayed Michael's bowl cut. He's not as daft as he looks, this fella. Don't encourage him, Dad. He'll not get away with it again, will you, Michael? Michael shook his head slowly, looking subdued. I was ill, though, Mum. He was staring up at the painting, and there was a look of vague horror beginning to appear on his paling face. His eyes started to widen into almost perfect circles, and his Adam's apple bobbed up and down as he swallowed rapidly. The old man in the picture looked exactly like the man in his worst nightmares. The man with the knife. The man who killed people. That afternoon, the children played mostly in the garden with Frank supervising. When the novelty of it wore off, they went back inside to the living room with some paper and pencils. Frank stayed outside, 
doing a spot of weeding. Mary was halfway through her baking when Michael walked into the kitchen slowly, looking agitated. Gran, that man in the painting, he moves about. Mary felt dread surface in the pit of her stomach. What do you mean, love? It's only a picture. Don't be silly. Her voice was quavering, alternating between pitches. He's not reading any more. The book's closed. Mary issued a startled whoop of air and walked apprehensively into the living room, flower on her arms. The man was sitting, slippers on as before, only this time his arms were resting on the arms of the chair. The book was lying closed on the corner of the bureau. Jill came to collect Michael and Sarah at three o'clock. They weren't any trouble, were they, Mum? They can be right little monkeys. They were fine, just fine. How did the exercise classes go? Jill blew air out through her mouth in a gesture of displayed weariness. All right, I suppose. Bet I ache tomorrow, though. Mary and Frank both laughed a little forcefully and said goodbye. Michael and Sarah kissed them both on the cheek, waved, then ran off down the driveway with their mother close behind. As soon as the door was shut, they went to look at the picture. Mary told Frank about the book incident. His head began to shake automatically as he noted the closed book on the bureau. Leaning close to the painting, he rubbed his hand over the surface of the canvas, feeling a slight revulsion at the texture of it. What do you think's wrong with it, Mary? He turned towards her. We're not crazy. We're saying rational people. We went on a day out yesterday to a place called Years Gone By and bought a painting. Just an ordinary painting. All right, so it looked a bit weird with the piercing eyes, but things aren't meant to change in it. It's still life. He turned back to the picture. Should we still not mention it to anyone, Frank? Would they think us mad? They probably would, and you can't really blame them either. His expression was one of despair, despair mingled with fear. Michael's seen it as well. Earlier this afternoon, he came into the kitchen and told me. It scares him. He senses something about it. Frank Stansfield let out a long sigh of relief. Thank goodness for that. We're not both nutty as a fruitcake after all. They both emitted a detached... Strained laugh. The man in the picture looked on impassively. Had they both had their gazes fixed on him the split second after they laughed, they would have seen his top lip rise up slightly, in an expression that could only be determined as a sneer. Half an hour later, they went into town for a few groceries before tea. Traffic was relatively light, and there weren't too many shoppers about. Their list comprised a loaf— a carton of sterilized milk, some fruit which Mary always insisted on, Frank wasn't that keen, and a six-pack of bitter. They were home for half-past four. Mary busied herself with preparing the tea, while Frank decided on a little lounging in front of the box. He cycled through the channels, seeming to encounter only programs designed for the under-fives, then settled on the tea-time quiz game with the words and numbers. He was just in time to catch the demise of the signature tune. During the interval, the painting entered his thoughts for the first time since they got back. His eyes wandered up slowly to the place above the fire. He wasn't really all that surprised at what he saw. The book had reverted to its original position, 
encroached in the long-fingered hands of the sinister subject. His head was bent, staring fixedly at the pages, as if utterly absorbed. The time on the grandfather clock in the corner of the living room announced that it was six o'clock. Frank and Mary had adopted their obligatory positions on the armchair and couch, respectively. Frank had just cracked open his third can of bitter, and his head was beginning to buzz slightly. The dreary sounds heralding the commencement of the news were just starting. They were both trying not to look at the picture. Out of the corner of their eye was fine, but a full gaze was out of the question. It had reached the stage where Mary had suggested they take it down, and store it away somewhere. Frank hadn't entirely dismissed the idea, but had stressed that it wouldn't do any harm to leave it hanging where it was, for a couple more weeks at least. Halfway through a depressing item of news, he suddenly had an idea. Not a great one, just something that had entered his head in a fleeting moment. Rising up from the chair, swaying a touch, he made his way over to the heavy-framed picture, which must have been roughly four feet wide and five in height. Pushing his head close, and almost setting his trousers on fire at the same time, he peered intently at the surface. The area he was most interested in was the front cover of the book, which the man was still studying avidly. He hadn't really thought of it before. It just hadn't occurred to him. Now, though, it did. He scrutinized the writing on the red-covered book with immense concentration. The letters were an embossed gold color, and at a slight angle, making it doubly difficult. The surface of the painting was grimy with age, coated with probably years' worth of dust. That was another odd thing about the picture. The fact that it was framed, yet lacked a glass front. Odd, indeed. Frank made his way into the kitchen, and proceeded to rummage around in the cupboard under the sink, swiping aside washing-up liquid and countless other tubes of cleaner. His questing fingers finally located what he required. "'What are you up to, Frank?' Mary asked him as he returned with a damp dishcloth. Frank granted an unintelligible response, and approached the canvas, wielding the soaked rag aloft as if protecting himself from it. He began to rub the cloth over the area carefully, eradicating the dirt to reveal the original brighter colour. The rejuvenated patch looked totally alien, in contrast to the rest of the oil. Looking at the section of dishcloth he had been using on it, he noted it had gone a nasty-looking grey-black colour. The words were discernible upon the first reading—four words in total. His stomach seemed to drop twenty feet as they registered in his reeling mind. "'Frank, what is it? What in heaven's name have you seen? Your face is ashen!' Frank turned. His armpits felt clammy. His vision juddered with every frantic beat of his heart. Words began to work their way out of his dry mouth. He spoke in the tone of someone reciting a doom-laden prophecy, extracted from the Chronicles of Nostradamus. His book, Mary! The, the title of his book! He paused, as if for emphasis. What about his book? Frank, what does it say? Living with mental illness. That's what it says, Mary. That's what he's reading. He slumped backwards into his chair feeling a tightness beginning to develop in his chest. When the grandfather clock dutifully announced the hour, Mary screamed.
Over the next few weeks, there were no other major changes to the painting, aside from those that had already taken place. There were recurrences of the open and closed book, and the crossed and uncrossed legs, but that was all. While the picture was still undoubtedly a serious and major issue, Mary and Frank found that their minds were gently pushing the whole business aside, and focusing, instead, on their looming week's holiday in Paris. It was a mere month away, and time had an increasing habit, it seemed to Frank and Mary, of snowballing along at a frightening rate. This fact made organization vital, and that was why Mary found herself cramming clothes and a plethora of other items, neatly and methodically, into two suitcases four weeks in advance. The looking after of the plants, and the matter of making sure everything was nicely ticking along in their absence, was to be taken care of by Jill. Frank had left strict, regimental instructions to Jill on the well-being of his beloved foliage. A list had been devised, comprising an inventory of each type of plant, and written at the side of them were details relating to the way in which that particular one should be treated. Jill had reassured him countless times that everything would be just fine, and would he just relax and enjoy his holiday. Frank, after finally realizing it was Mary who had helped him realize what an old fusspot he was being, had eventually ceased mithering, and began to clear his mind of all worry. The day arrived, with the relentless speed they had expected. The ceremony of the waving goodbye to family and neighbors was taken care of, before Frank reversed the hearse out of the driveway, out of the estate, and southwards towards the channel. The painting never entered their thoughts once. Eight days later, they arrived back, Frank pulling the large car slowly into the driveway. They both looked a little darker, had eaten and drank in copious amounts, and were subsequently in very high spirits. "'That waiter was definitely flirting with you,' Frank remarked with pseudo-graveness, as Mary unbuckled her belt. "'Give over, Frank. I was old enough to be his grandmother.' Mary was blushing slightly, Frank observed. That was it. He was after being a toy boy. Mary gave his arm a friendly slap. You can talk. I saw you giving that leggy brunette the eye. The one who had the room opposite us. You couldn't stop drooling. Why would I need to look at anybody else when I've got you, Mary? Frank reached for the keys and flicked off the ignition. Flattery will get you everywhere, Frank. Mary said, laughing. Just a brew will suffice. Frank returned, and they both clambered out, giggling like a couple of adolescents. The old place the same as it ever was. Frank had opened one of the back doors of the car, and was dragging out the hefty cases. I told you we wouldn't need half of this stuff. Better to be prepared, that's always been my motto. Mary was walking towards the front door, and discovering that it wasn't locked. There was a two-inch gap between door and frame. Frank, Jill must be here. The door's open. Funny she's not heard us arrive, though. Frank walked over, a case in each hand. Well, don't just stand there, woman. Go inside and get that kettle whistling. Mary stepped inside. Hi, Jill. No response greeted the call. The house was silent, but for the incessant ticking of the grandfather in the corner of the living room. Strange, Frank remarked setting the cases down on the hall floor. Jill? Again, 
no returned greeting. Mary started walking in the direction of the kitchen, repeatedly calling her daughter's name. "'Where can she be?' Frank muttered to himself. His right hand had moved up to his chin, and was stroking it thoughtfully. Then it dawned. Of course. Why hadn't they realized when they first walked in? The garden. She was in— A shrill scream cut off his thoughts instantly. A high-pitched wail that turned Frank's blood to ice. His arm flopped back to his side, and swung limply. Like a character in a dream, he began to move towards the source of the shriek. The kitchen was reached in ten wooden strides. The scene that confronted his gaze made something in his mind snap like a brittle twig. His mouth opened with a soft tearing sound, and he began to howl like a jackal. The howling was punctuated with sobs. His daughter, Jill, was lying on the kitchen linoleum. Above her head, which was cocked at a seemingly impossible angle, a kitchen drawer lay open. A bread-knife had been taken out, and plunged into the side of her neck, up to the hilt. There was a lot of blood, the majority of it on the ceiling. Above the loud, roaring sounds in his ears, he managed to hear the sickly crack of Mary's head, connecting with the corner of the kitchen unit, before she crumpled to the floor beside the body of her murdered daughter. Frank Stansfield continued to howl and scream. He staggered blindly into the living room, almost crashing over an armchair. His shin banged into the coffee table, and he fell. Before he hit the carpeted floor, something tore through his ravaged mind, some feverish thought relating to the painting hanging over the fire. His head swiveled towards it at the same time as his body struck the ground. There was no sign of the old man. The chair was empty. He had no idea how long he lay there, gibbering like a lunatic. His senses seemed to have dulled. He couldn't seem to see and hear things properly. Sounds felt like they were reaching his ears via a long tunnel, and no matter how many times he blinked, the mist enveloping his vision stubbornly refused to clear. He had been dimly aware of Mrs. Chenery, their next-door neighbour, frantically banging buttons on their telephone in the hall. Then— Everything had gone muzzy and dreamlike, as if his brain was deciding whether to just call it a day and cease to function. The wailing of sirens seemed very far away, even as they reached the front of his home. Voices, urgent authoritarian voices surrounded him, travelling down a long, long corridor of blackness. There were two police cars and an ambulance parked outside. Two paramedics were carrying a stretcher, covered by a blanket towards the latter vehicle. Frank Stansfield burst into tears. His swept-back hair was hanging over his face now in long, silver strands. The tears flowed, unrestrained, and he let them. The paramedics came back in, and made their way over. A police officer did likewise. He was examined thoroughly, and they told him that apart from a badly bruised tibia, no other physical injuries had been sustained. The policeman had placed a comforting arm around Frank's shoulders, and handed him a clean tissue. Frank took it robotically, and used it. There were several other officers in the kitchen, carrying out the necessary procedures exactly by the book. Why? Frank sobbed through the saturated tissue. Why? 
What did we do to him? The police officer told him, as gently as he possibly could, that his daughter was dead. She had died very recently, probably this morning. Nothing had been stolen, as far as they could ascertain. Whoever had committed the crime must have followed Jill to the house, as there was no sign of forced entry. The knife and the handle of the drawer would be dusted for Prince, though this was a long shot, considering the fact that gloves could have been worn. His wife had been taken to hospital with concussion and severe shock trauma. He couldn't take any of it in. He wanted to die. He told those around him about the man in the painting, the man with the mental illness. They nodded and told him to calm down. His son-in-law would have to be told. What about Michael and Sarah? No mother? He burst into fresh tears. They asked him questions. He answered them as best he could, after being handed a fresh Kleenex. Just the basics were asked of him. It wasn't the time or the place for the third degree. Neighbours, as well as Mrs. Chenery, came over to comfort him, offering their condolences. The police seemed to be there hours. He didn't really mind. Just comforting background noise. They eventually left, saying they would soon be in touch. Mary. Poor Mary, hospitalised. He should be there, not here. He stood up and almost immediately fell back down. The room tilted to the left and then to the right in a sickening lurch. Worried exclamations ensued. I'm all right. Can someone take me to the hospital? I need to see Murray. I— He broke off with an exhausted gasp. The ambulanceman had insisted he be taken in for observation, just to be on the safe side. Frank had stubbornly refused, saying that that was the last place he wanted to be. In his extremely precarious state of mind, he hadn't thought about Mary. The death of his daughter had totally eclipsed all other shred of thought. "'Come on, Frank, we'll use my car.' It was Mr. Gardner who had spoken. He helped him up from the settee and held on to him until the all-clear was given. Frank detachedly began to rummage around in his front trouser pocket for his keys— His cold right hand located them, and drew them out. Frank thanked the rest of his neighbours as they stepped outside into the pleasant sunshine. They told him that it was the least they could do, and if he wanted anything, he only had to ask. They all walked down the driveway, past Frank's car, and disbanded at the gate. John Gardner grabbed hold of Frank as he suddenly began to sway on his feet, face draining of colour. "'I'm okay, John.' Just another dizzy spell. I'll be all right in a second. When blood began to return to Frank's pallid face, they started to make their way over to John's house, which was situated directly opposite. His metro was parked neatly in the drive, flanked on either side by immaculately kept lawns. As they both clambered in, the true reality of what had happened struck Frank with almost paralyzing force. His breathing stopped temporarily, forcing his heart to produce a series of walloping thuds. He slumped back into the seat, and a terrifying mental image formed in his brain. That image comprised a painting and a mentally ill old man. Jill unlocks the front door and makes her way through to the back garden. The old man's murderous eyes dart first left, then right, before he springs out of the picture— 
and advances on his hapless daughter as she wrestles with the bolts on the back door. And where was he now? Rampant on the estate somewhere was most probable. The entire neighbourhood was in terrible danger. As the car swung its way into the hospital grounds at speed, Frank's mind was nothing but a hiss of static. The police got in touch with Frank Stansfield the following day. Mary was still in the hospital, but they had said she could go home in a couple more days, providing there were no setbacks of any kind. When Frank had seen her the day before, she had been awake, but totally confused. Her eyes had held a vacant quality that Frank had never seen before—a flat, listless stare aimed at the flimsy bedsheets that covered her. Her hands had been freezing cold to the touch, and he had attempted, as best he could muster without breaking down himself, to comfort her. Eventually, the tears had flowed, and that was best. Keeping it all in was no good. Best for her to do what he had done himself, and weep. The police told him that, regretfully, there were no prints at all on the handle of the knife. There were some faded ones on the drawer handle, but these corroborated with the sets that Frank and Mary had themselves supplied. Frank felt a despairing emptiness fill his head, and he squeezed both his eyes shut and massaged his throbbing temples. The officer then told him that a substance had been found on the knife handle—a pink-coloured substance. Frank's eyes snapped back open, and he peered intently at the CID officer's face, which was emotionless. What sort of substance? Initial analysis checks revealed it to contain the exact chemical composition of oil paint. To Frank, the world suddenly went grey, then black. Their daughter's funeral was a week later. There were many mourners— lots of friends as well as relatives. Jill had been very popular. The weather for the melancholy occasion was warm and pleasant. Mary had arrived home from hospital five days earlier. She was still having mild headaches, and occasionally felt very tired, but had improved considerably in the short time that had elapsed. The bump on her head, which had been the size of a large horse chestnut a week ago, was now much diminished, though still painful to the touch. Her emotional state over the last few days had been much the same as Frank's—that of stunned disbelief. After the funeral, they gathered at their son-in-law's house for a few drinks and sandwiches. The atmosphere was strained, but it was the best anyone could do under the circumstances. After half an hour or so, Mary told Frank that she was feeling tired and wanted to go home for a lie down. Frank told her to go ahead and do just that, and he would follow after thanking the rest of the mourners. No more than five minutes later, as he was in the process of divulging in a nostalgia trip with his brother Bill, a jolt of terror coursed through him. His whiskey glass slipped from his fingers and bounced up off the hearth rug. Alcohol splashed his trousers, but it didn't matter. A wail of escalating shock escaped from his drying mouth, and people began to turn and stare. He was giving the impression of a man caught in the throes of a massive cardiac arrest. To his numbed brain, everything started to slow down. His brother raised an arm up to him. Seemingly eons later, he distantly felt a hand on his shoulder. The hand 
jointly followed by another, was forcing him down onto an armchair. The roaring sound in his head was deafening. Murray! Oh, Lord, Murray! The house! The painting! He suddenly leaped up from the chair, almost breaking Bill's chin with the top of his head. The front door was ripped open. It smashed back into the wall, the handle taking out a clump of plaster. Galloping down the driveway, he flew past the Bedford van parked there, occasionally overstepping and shredding plants apart with his pounding shoes, and vaulted the closed gate, which must have approximated four feet in height. The momentum he had achieved was too much, causing him to dive forward after striking the ground and executing a bone-jarring forward roll on the tarmac. He stood back up unperturbed, tears rolling down his grief-stricken face, and ploughed on. His feet drummed the path in a frantic tattoo. Air rattled through his windpipe like vigorously pumped bellows. His hair flopped about in greasy strips. The pain in his lungs was excruciating, like internal fire. Adrenaline was awash throughout his bloodstream, lending him a terrific amount of energy as he surged on. He was nearing their house, a mere three bungalows away. Everything looked normal. Mary was asleep on the couch. Mary had to be asleep on the couch. Please, please, God. The gate was reached. Pushing it open this time, he ambled up the drive, his left arm beginning to share the pain that had manifested itself in his chest. Distantly, he heard shouts coming from the direction of his son-in-law's home, shouts followed by a hasty scuffing of feet. Frank Stansfield collapsed as he stepped over the threshold. Intense agony racked his whole body. There was a sensation of impending death creeping into the hollows of his mind. But his health wasn't important now. Mary's health was the important thing. He was crawling on his elbows and knees through the hallway. The ticking of the grandfather clock seemed very loud. The ticking of doom. As he approached the door to the living room, he tried to call out Mary's name in the vain hope of a response. Nothing came out but a dusty croak. The door was ajar by about five inches. Through the gap he could see nothing except the side of the settee. With a monstrous effort of will, he brought his right arm up and shoved at the door with a sweaty palm of his hand. It swung open with a low creak and revealed a six-by-three rectangle of room. Frank made his way in on his belly. Blinking away beads of sweat as they rolled down his forehead and over the tangled bush of eyebrows, he lifted his head up which had been pressed into the deep pile of carpet, and saw. At the same moment, something seemed to explode within the confines of his ribcage. He emitted a barely audible gasp, his terribly bloodshot eyes locked into position over the fireplace. They appeared to bulge outwards in a comic book symbol of horror. It was a painting of an old woman. Not too old. Hair done up in a bun. She was sat in an armchair. Her legs were uncrossed. Her arms were resting on the arms of the chair. It was the spitting image of his wife, Mary. Mary.